0: Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund, Focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. We often hear the concern from nonprofit groups that their donors are aging rapidly. They worry that there are no new donors to take their place. Now, of course, there are donors to take their place. But the real question is why groups wait until those donors are in their later years to cultivate them. Several years ago, we launched the Novus Society at Donors Trust because we think there is no reason to assume young professionals don't want to engage in philanthropy. Givers in their 20s and 30s may not have a lot to give, but over time, they will give more and more. In the five years since we started the program, we've watched as young donors... Open donor advised accounts with just $1,000, and in a few years were giving away 10 times that. The secret is they did the work to cultivate the giving habit. So, why am I telling you all this about the Nova Society? It's because today's episode draws on the recommendation from this cohort of givers. For the past two years, we've ended the year with the Nova Society holiday giving match. Members contributed at least $100 from their donor advice fund, and then they earn the right to nominate a group who will in the end win the full pot of donated money, plus a match from Donors Trust. In our first year, our finalists were the Property and Environmental Research Center, better known as PERC, America's Future, and Beckett Fund for Law and Liberty, which went on to win the prize. This year's nominees were a completely different slate, Alliance Defending Freedom, the Instituto de Libertad Económica de Puerto Rico, and the Mike Rowe Works Foundation. Today I'm talking to each of these three groups. They are very different, which I hope will give you some confidence in the wide array of interests from today's young, liberty-minded donors. And at the end, I'll tell you which of these three groups won the grand prize. So let's jump in. In a large and growing pantheon of public interest law firms out there, Alliance Defending Freedom is unique. Guided by Christian values, it bills itself as the world's largest legal organization committed to protecting religious freedom, free speech, marriage and family, parental rights, and the sanctity of life. These are important issues, and ADF has an incredible track record, with 13 victories at the Supreme Court just since 2011, and overall seeing a favorable verdict in nearly 80% of its cases. Mike Ferris has been CEO of ADF since 2017, and I'm happy to have him here with me today so mike you all at adf do so much it can be tough to know exactly where to start in telling the story so why don't we start with a story Uh, is there a particular win that you think really typifies the work that you and adf are doing
1: well the number one case i would think that most people would recognize and it's near and dear to my heart as well is the story of jack phillips in masterpiece cake shop Uh, uh jack phillips is the uh cake designer artist, uh, from the Denver area who, uh, was asked to, uh, custom design a same-sex wedding cake. And, uh, Jack will serve all people, but he won't deliver all messages. Uh, and so he declined to design a same-sex wedding cake. In that case, uh, went to the Supreme Court of the United States. My, uh, colleague, uh, Christian Wagner, who's our general counsel, argued the case. And, uh, We won the case 7-2 in the Supreme Court of the United States uh, on religious freedom ground. Unfortunately, the um, uh, state of Colorado hasn't let up on him. Another person has filed a a similar uh, complaint against him, and so we're back in effectively round three of uh, defending Jack Phillips. So our our commitment to doing this in the long run, uh, our ability to win unexpectedly at the Supreme Court, which we attribute to God's blessing, not, not our own skill, I think that that's one of our our more famous cases and better cases. Uh, If I was allowed a second one, I would uh, talk about the the case of Nifla versus Becerra, which I had the privilege of arguing uh, before the Supreme Court in 2018. And there, California tried to silence uh, pro life pregnancy centers who are doing such a good job of saving the lives of babies. And they uh, uh, instituted two different kinds of speech controls. But we'll just highlight the one on, on the medical centers. So the medical centers, they said that you had to uh, give a pro-abortion message to everybody that came in the door uh, saying, if you want a free abortion, just call the state of California. Here's the 800 number. And so they could do it by putting a sign on their wall, or they could hand the, uh, a piece of paper to every client that walked in the door. But these uh, committed pro-life facilities weren't going to do it at all. And there was a way to try to shut them down. And, uh, we won that case in the Supreme Court on free speech grounds 5 to 4. should have been 9-0, but it was 5-4. Justice Thomas wrote a great opinion saying that the state of California, in fact, government in general, can't force you to deliver a message you don't want to deliver. And so that combines both free speech uh, elements and right-to-life elements. And so we are very, very thrilled about protecting uh, the right of uh, pro-life pregnancy centers to continue to do their great work.
0: It's great. I know there's so many other victories that, that you all have, and you know there's also a lot of ways to try to make change for our values, from research to lobbying, advocacy, and then the litigation work that you do. Is there something you think is uniquely effective about taking the battle to the courts?
1: I do. I, I, I don't think that uh, litigation will solve every issue that we have or advance everything, but it's an important element uh, of, of the, the uh, alliance a kind of victory. that Our movement needs to be advancing these issues: right to life, religious freedom, freedom of speech, all all of this cluster of issues. Uh, there's going to be need for legislation, but but uh, particularly in this time frame, uh, where uh, especially at the federal level, where Congress is controlled by a party that doesn't believe in the values that we're talking about, and the White House, of course, does not agree with these values. The courts are our most effective thing at the moment, but even in, a, in a, a times where there's a more favorable administration or a more favorable Congress, there's, there's effective change that the left has been able to do for a long time. And so stopping them from using the courts for that matter is an important element of our, of our defense, but also um, our ability to advance our values is, is, is done very well. I, I did this for uh, 30 years in the homeschooling movement before I came to ADF. It was the combination of litigation and uh, legislation that that ultimately won that. And I I use the analogy of the litigation is kind of like the air force; we come in and bomb stuff and uh, you know soften the ground. But ultimately, the victory in the homeschooling world was made in the legislative uh, arena. And I think that there's a lot of truth for that overall. That uh, it's that combination one-two punch. And so we we do a little bit in the legislative world, but mostly. We, we focus on litigation because uh, that's where God's called us, equipped us, and uh, made us effective.
0: Yeah, we talk a lot about how we need all the different pieces uh, to be effective and to, to make our, our values go forward. So that that's, I think, a good articulation of it. Now, so here's something I didn't know until I was starting to prepare for this interview. I always mispronounce the name of the organization. I always put a four in there. Didn't really understand that the word alliance in your name is not really a throwaway, uh, you all really mean something very specific by it. Can you talk to us about what that means?
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's our first name. Uh, you know, we, we, we are uh, an alliance, and, and there are several elements uh, of the alliance that we think is necessary. First, is our uh, the most obvious is our own team. We have a, a large team. We have about 350 full-time staff, uh, about 75 of those are lawyers, and uh, it, it's both here in, in the United States, and we have um, a legal team uh, in uh, international locations as well. We have five offices in Europe. We have a big t- big team for our international program, at least, in India. And we do work in uh, uh, Latin America and Central America, South America, and, and so on. So, um, But we, we mean more than that. Uh, we have 3,000 allied attorneys that have chosen to affiliate with us. Uh, and we give uh, them cases on a regular basis, we're asked to take thousands of cases a year. And ADF, as a staff, can do 100-plus kind of cases. Uh, And so the vast majority of cases that we uh, uh, get done as an alliance are done by our 3,000 allied attorneys. Uh, Now, they are not typically the test cases, the big cases that, that you hear about in the Supreme Court. But they're important as well. If, if you don't win those kind of um, entry level and line item and day-to-day cases, you, you know, the freedoms will, will evaporate. And so they're, they're very important. So And then the, there's more, even more than that. There are other organizations that are um, in this same space, and we view our uh, collective responsibilities to stand with each other. When, when a, a group like Liberty Council... As a case of the Supreme Court, we believe it's our responsibility to stand with them and file amicus briefs for them and help them prepare for oral arguments. So we are often staging um, courts for for people you know, that, that are other organizations and and a coordinating amicus for them. And and so um, we, we believe that as well. And then uh, another element is uh, training future leaders in in the law. We have a program that's 22 years old. It's called the Blackstone Legal Fellowship. And we train nowadays about 180 uh, future lawyers every year. And it's a a very in-depth teaching in in constitutional originalism and Christian views of law. And that launches them into a lifetime of service. And we give them career services for the rest of their life. And so we now see there, there are two federal court of appeals judges that came through the Blackstone program years ago and uh, three state Supreme Court justices and a number of lawyers for Congress, for state attorney generals, for serving many, many, many spots, big law firms, small law firms, state legislatures and so on. So it's, we believe in, you know, investing in all that that sphere and together we can do a lot of things that if we, we tried to do it just with our own staff, it wouldn't the job wouldn't
0: get done. Yeah, it's team effort. And that, that is uh, very helpful in understanding what that alliance means. That's a lot of different moving pieces to to watch and oversee and, and keep moving in the right direction. So every single one of your five core issues is a hot button right now. Uh, so that I'm sure keeps things interesting and busy from pro-life to parental issues. It's all seems here, especially at the end of the year, to be on the forefront uh, of the news. So pull out your crystal ball for a second. What do you think the issue set is going to look like in 2022.
1: Well, it's going to be the the same issues that uh, we see burning in uh, the, at the end of this year, Uh, right to life is going to be a huge issue this year, obviously, with the Dobbs case being released before June 30th. And uh, uh, you know, it's not just my um, hopeful spirit, the new york times the washington post the los angeles times all predicted a victory for mississippi in that case now whether the victory will be limited to a 15-week ban or will be a complete overturning of roe versus wade um you know that's a much more speculative guess uh it it, it's pretty easy to read the tea leaves and think that a win is looks good you know nothing's guaranteed but a win does look good in the case and I'm very hopeful they're going to reverse Roe versus Wade, but that's, you know, that's a, a prayer request. And, a, uh, and and if that happens, then we're going to see the world just go crazy. And, and there's going to be both uh, danger and great opportunity. Uh, and so, because what will happen, of course, is that every state will then be allowed to set its own policy on what it wants to do on the, on the pro-life agenda. And so there's going to be a number of states that will be pro-life overnight and a number of states that will be uh, uh, working to be pro-life, and there are other states that will take an opposite view, and so we're going to see just a a flurry of activity in that zone, and it's going to be very, very important to be engaged uh, in in that level. Parental rights are going to be a huge issue still. Uh, We filed a major lawsuit just last week uh, in Albemarle County, Virginia, challenging the constitutionality of critical race theory in the public schools, critical gender theory as well. And uh, we've asked for several forms of release, not the least of which is parents who felt like they've had to leave the schools because of that, they should get their tuition reimbursed. And so it effectively uh, puts a a form of uh, educational choice on the table, if you will, that will say, if you're going to do this and violate people's rights, then you've got to give them an alternative by taking those same state dollars and redirecting it to another school. And that's going to be a big, big issue uh, in the coming year.
0: It's going to be going to be a lot to watch. Well, can Mike Ferris, really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you, Peter. If you've ever visited Puerto Rico, you know what a beautiful place it is. From the jungles and beaches to the mountains to the cities, the island really does have everything. It's a delightful place to visit, but living there has its challenges. The prosperity we see in so many other parts of the United States has actually been in decline in Puerto Rico for far too long. A new think tank on the island aims to change that. The Instituto de Libertad Económica de Puerto Rico, or the Institute for Economic Liberty for Puerto Rico, started in 2019 to help build a Puerto Rico where everyone has the ability to prosper in a free and open society. Jorge Rodriguez founded the institute and continues to lead it as the CEO, but unlike a lot of think tank founders, he didn't come out of the nonprofit world. Rather, he was founder and CEO of Passive, an international industrial automation engineering firm. So, Jorge, before we go too deep into ELE and its mission, what prompted you to go from the business world to running a think tank?
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for uh, that question, because uh, sometimes I ask that myself. Uh, I'm an engineer, so I think that has a lot to do with it, but I'm also... Someone that looks for solutions, right? How, how to solve things. So as I was prospering in the business and we opened offices in the U.S. and we opened offices in Europe, I noticed that we kept growing our business and these other places where we were operating were flourishing. People were prospering. And as you mentioned, Puerto Rico was going backwards and, and significantly backwards. So, you know, after we declare bankruptcy with the $129 billion, the largest uh, bankruptcy of any U.S. jurisdiction, um, you know, I, I realized that uh, we had some fundamental and structural issues. Um, and I started to think more on the, you know, social arena, which I've never thought about it. I've always focused on my, on my business and, and engineering and our clients. I think the tipping point was Hurricane Maria. So I was very big into entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is my passion. Uh, I come from immigrant parents. Um, they came from Spain, and uh, they saw the U.S. as the land of opportunities, the typical immigrant story. And I noticed that in Puerto Rico, uh, as I was trying to, to drive more entrepreneurship, there was some structural issues. Basically, what I later found out to be market failures. So, you know, as I engaged maybe through all those 22 years leading the company, uh, all my my social efforts were really into the entrepreneurship world. I realized that uh, the market failures mostly driven by government failures were not establishing like a healthy market for everyone to have an equal opportunity. Uh, but at that point, you know, I've never studied political science. I've never, I didn't know what a think tank was. But I did come to realize um, that I wanted to do something uh, bigger than what I would have done, more to give back to Puerto Rico. And that's when I said I wanted to now do something with entrepreneurship, but different. And then a friend of mine told me, you should look into think tank. I literally Google a think tank. And then I realized it's it's very engineering. It's basically you do a lot of study, a lot of data-driven research, uh, sound, um, you know, based on on schools of thoughts and and principles. And from there, you you provide, you know, um, uh, a healthy environment for policymaking to be using, you know, uh, uh, evidence-based research. So to me, that made a lot of sense because that's what we engineers do. And then they told me, well, how about if you put think tank and free market together? And that's when they told me to look at the state policy network and to look at Atlas. And I couldn't believe that there was actually people that have put a lot of thought and thinking into this. And that's when I said, you know what, I'm going to dedicate myself now to, to build a think tank that can actually uh, create a, a better policymaking for the market to be more healthy more sound and as such uh have a more entrepreneurial uh, society in puerto rico
0: and so that's kind of the goal with Ela: create that more entrepreneurial society so how do you how do you get there
2: we are founded on the school of thought of classical liberalism right so we do have already a structure a framework of thinking which is classical liberalism which is capitalism and it's actually how our Constitution and the U.S. Constitution is, is based. So that's the framework that we operate, and all our research is, is driven by those principles. Uh, how do we get there is by producing knowledge under those frameworks for a more healthy and sound market. Now, in Puerto Rico, it's, it's a two-prone it's a, it's a approach. You need to go to the masses. And you need to communicate in rights and beings what this is. Contrary to the U.S., in Puerto Rico, we are not raised or we're not, you know, educated on an environment of liberty, freedom, and pursuit of happiness. So these basic constitutional principles that the U.S. have are not embedded in our culture. So the first thing we need to do as a think tank is communicate what that means in rights and beings, right, for them to understand. And then the second one is actually producing the knowledge, producing the research, using our universities, our professors, collaborating with universities in the states to then provide the legislature and the policymakers uh, sound evidence-based uh, knowledge that they can actually derive policies out of it. For Rico is in a great opportunity window because we have a bankruptcy, we are under federal court, there is a, a federal law, PROMESA law, by the U.S. Congress to address our bankruptcy, restructure our debt, and actually make the structural changes that need to be made at the policy making, because if not, you know, 30 years from now, we're going to be in bankrupt again. And all those structural reforms are based on free market principles. So it's a great opportunity to produce this research now and collaborate with, with states uh, that have done it already and be able to, to give that to our legislature. First things we're doing, we are inserting Puerto Rico in the three main indexes in the US. Uh, you have the Doing Business North America Index from Arizona State University. You have also the Economic Liberty um, Freedom Index. And also there is out of the Institute of Justice, they have the license to work We're also doing a survey of Puerto Rico mindset and attitude toward free market-based principles. Uh, We want to know where are Puerto Ricans in in their mindset about free markets uh, based principles. And then we're also doing um, uh, essays. We have actually, we completed that project. We did 12 essays on all the principles of free market, individual liberties, rule of law, property rights, limited government. And what we're trying to do is with those essays is create like an education campaign for this first year where we'll be very actively, um, you know, uh, communicating these principles to the masses. So we don't only need to go with the research legislature and with these, uh, uh, you know, um, data that we will producing, but also we need to go to the people and let them know where we're standing.
0: So you're down in Puerto Rico. We're here on the mainland. A lot of the listeners are on the mainland. What do you think is so important about the work you're doing and can be leveraged about the work you're doing that should make it have an impact on the folks here on the mainland too? Why should we be concerned about what happens down in Puerto Rico?
2: I think the U.S. taxpayers and the people in the States have to be very concerned. First of all, right now, Puerto Rico is on a dependency model. Puerto Rico is a welfare state. You know, let it be known that Puerto Rico is three times poorer than the poorest state in, in in the United States, which is Mississippi. We are, you know, we have the biggest income inequality of any state, and we receive approximately twenty one to twenty seven billion dollars of U.S. transfer funds yearly. And now with the recovery funds, that's almost uh, fifty billion, that will probably be distributed like in ten years all these and by the way our local exports don't even get to like 8 billion wow so we spend three times more than we produce and that is us taxpayer money if 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 you have a territory that is under a dependency model will really a welfare state uh, you need to start Focusing on how do you get these people out of dependency? How do you put them in an equation where they can be contributors? Because basically, they're using U.S. taxpayer monies. We don't pay federal taxes. And, you know, we're proud U.S. citizens, but we are right now depending uh, on the U.S. taxpayers, and that needs to stop. And honestly, it's not because we're not hard workers. It's not because we don't have the talents or we don't have the competencies. We had over 890,000 Puerto Ricans have left in the last 10 years to the U.S. Because obviously, we're U.S. citizens, we just get on a plane. It's the largest migration wave of any state or U.S. jurisdiction is Puerto Rico. You know, We went from 3.8 million to 3.2 million And these are professionals, well-educated people. They get on the plane, they go to the states, and they become productive individuals. That can be done here. You just need to remove all this bureaucracy and all these public sector barriers that don't let people flourish.
0: That's a great framing. That's a really, really valuable point. Well, Jorge, really appreciate what you're doing. Our folks at the NOVA Society really are cheering you on. and uh, And appreciate you talking to us today. Mike Rowe, of Dirty Jobs fame, thinks America has a problem. It's that we've made an enemy out of work. To diminish the value of hard but necessary jobs in favor of the pursuit of four-year degrees and and white-collar roles, and that's a strategy that isn't working anymore. As he says, quote, America is lending money it doesn't have to kids who can't pay it back to train them for jobs that no longer exist. That's nuts, end quote. So to counter this, he launched the MicroWorks Foundation in 2008, and since then has given out more than $5.2 million in scholarships to help eager workers learn hard skills. I am joined today by Jade Estrada, Vice President of the MicroWorks Foundation, to talk about what the foundation is up to. Jade, let's start with that saying that I know is like a swear word around your office, work smart, not hard. Why do you all view this idea as such a poison for our society?
3: I don't know that we view it as a poison per se, as much as we view it, there's, we have an alternate phrase that we use, which is work smart and hard. Um, And I think it's particularly relevant now because we've become so used to finding efficiencies and or shortcuts today, right? And while efficiencies are great when they're effective, nothing really supersedes hard work and work ethic. We want to close the skills gap by challenging the myths and misperceptions that exist about the skilled trades and to f- figure out what it is that's discouraging people from pursuing the millions of jobs that are available. You know, Mike often says a four-year degree is not the best path for the most people. And, you know, we want people to understand the importance of skilled labor on their lives, which we believe starts with a new appreciation for hard work.
0: One of the, the big ways, other than Mike getting out there and preaching the gospel of hard work uh, out there and on its podcast and doing all kinds of stuff, the foundation's main program is this scholarship, these work ethic scholarships. Tell us about those and how they work.
3: The work ethic scholarship program is the main program that we run annually, and we provide financial assistance to students who are attending a technical or vocational school for two-year programs or less. So it could be a license program. Um, Some are just certificate programs largely focused around the skilled trades. So welding, auto tech, construction, electrical, HVAC. Um, we think of it in terms of the trades that make civilized life possible. And so through that program, we're looking to reward people who focus on not the things that you would typically think of when you think of a, of a scholarship program. We're not really looking at grades per se, but we're looking for people who are able to make a case for themselves and show us that they demonstrate really four basic things, work ethic, personal responsibility, delayed gratification, and a positive attitude. Um, these are all sort of the qualities that are outlined in something we call the SWEAT pledge. Uh, SWEAT is an acronym for skill and work ethic aren't taboo. And the entire application process is based around this idea of do you understand this concept? Do you believe in this concept? Can you share it and demonstrate how you do? Um, and are there other people who can speak for you to show that you do demonstrate these things, these qualities, uh, specifically instructors or former bosses who can who can speak to your work ethic. Um, so this program is launching on February 23rd, and the application cycle will be open until April 14th. How many applicants do you usually get for something like that? It really varies. I know last year, I think I had just pulled the numbers for these, we had about 3,200 people who started the application. And by the time the application cycle s- closed and we were starting to evaluate the applications there were 420 completed applications so you might be saying to yourself that's a that's a big disparity but the reality is the application process is a very robust one and you know we recognize it isn't for everyone right the whole purpose is we want to weed out the people who demonstrate work ethic and who are willing to jump through the hoops and do all of the things that are required of the program Um, so yeah, so last year was about 420 and I think we awarded about 134, 135 students. Oh, wow. So that's, that's a tough competition. That's pretty (laughs) good. Yeah. So how do you measure the
0: impact of that?
3: On on the simple side, I think you can say, you know, we've given away five and a half or sorry, $5.2 million in scholarships, uh, since we started the program, you know, we've supported more than 1200 students who've gone through it. You know, we've had recipients in about 48 states. Uh, We've supported 19 skilled trade programs. On social media, we've shared more than 120-plus stories of the people who have supported the program. You know, our scholarship sponsorship has been up year by year um, with sponsors and companies who are willing to support this program and see a need for it. But I think, you know, ultimately, it's sort of funny because we've become known or started to become known as a scholarship fund, when the reality is the important part of this is the PR piece, right? This program is the catalyst by which we have the opportunity to talk about the trades and to talk about the importance of the work. And so, you know, it gives us the opportunity to to share these success stories and to show the next generation, these are people who are succeeding in the trades and you can too. You know, because I think there's this perception of what, jobs in the trades look like which which has always been in the media sort of with a veil of not as valuable as the opportunities that can come as a result of a four-year degree and we want to level the the playing field and show people who are succeeding and thriving as a result of of learning a trade. Do you feel you're bending that curve in the national narrative? I I I think so or I hope so. You know, it's 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 really hard to measure and and ultimately we're competing against with the what 40 50 years of being told that a four-year degree is the brass ring right and, and i think it, the, the most simplest way that i understood it when mike said it is you know we've become so focused as a culture on attaining the corner office job right that we fail to remember who actually built the corner office and that it's it's sort of interesting to think about it from that perspective because you know the opportunity that exists in the trades you know and the entrepreneurship that can come as a result of that is incredible. And if people knew, frankly, the financial opportunity that comes there and the ability to really build a business, it's interesting that it's not talked about even more.
0: 100% agree. All right, so the marketer in me has a question about tone. So you are very intentionally quite irreverent and blunt on your website. Mike doesn't shy away from making his views known in public uh, talks. How does that bluntness and irreverence help support the mission? I mean, does it, it's obviously critical to what you do. How do you think it, it
3: advances the cause? I th- one of the reasons I like working with Mike is because what you see is what you get. And I think he's an authentic and a straightforward person and people see that about him. And, and that's why we have grown as a foundation year over year. Just in terms of more broadly, the things that I think aren't necessarily measurable, it's hard to measure PR, right? Because the charter of the foundation per Mike is PR first you know, we want to help change that narrative around the skilled trades and ultimately help close the skills gap. And I think if anything, it's really sort of, it's a slow moving train um, and it requires constantly patting people on the shoulder and reminding them of the opportunity that exists. But I think Mike does that so well. You know, I think in, I would say 80% of the, the media that he does, this is a constant talking point for him, you know, I would arguably say he's the leading advocate for the skilled trades in this country. Um, you know, I, he's he's been asked to testify before Congress about closing the skills gap, at least on, on two occasions. Forbes credited him as the reason they created the f- the first top 30 uh, vocational schools or trade schools rankings in 2017 because of a video that he had done um, that, that called them out for, for only recognizing colleges and universities. So, you know, I think this past year is another example of something. He released a song. It was, it was a number one Christmas song on iTunes um, that was benefiting the Microworks Foundation and focused on the theme around dirty jobs. And, I mean, he's not even a recording artist and was able to have a number one hit song on iTunes. So I think that all of those things coupled together, I think, go back to, you know, there is a shift I think that's happening, but but ultimately, I think it takes time and it takes, frankly, work.
0: Well, it's a great example of an organization that has a voice, has a point of view, but is also having a real impact. And you know, you have Mike Rowe; that's a great person to have at the top. I know he very much values you, uh, making sure the ship keeps going forward. So, Jay Estrada, I really appreciate you talking to us today.
3: Of course, no, thank you for having me. <music>
0: These three groups, as you heard, are a real mixed bag of causes, aren't they? I was excited to do this episode for exactly that reason. It reminds us that the community of givers out there, and in fact the community just within Donors Trust, is wildly varied. Yet they all do have one thing in common. They hold the belief that people can drive their destiny when given the freedom to do so. Jorge points out that Puerto Ricans are hardworking folks stymied by inept government policies. Jade and Mike Rowe remind us hardworking folks are also stymied by an ethos that devalues that hard work, but they should be free to pursue their own American dream. And Mike Ferris and the ADF team help knock down government interference, standing in the way of people's ability to live the life they want. Who would be your winner for the holiday giving match? All three of these organizations got votes from our novice cohort, but in the end, they went for Instituto de Libertad Economica which won the grant of $6,200. Elay was certainly helped by a very passionate Novus member who recommended the group and spoke on its behalf in our online happy hour, but I think it also speaks to an interest among younger donors to see leveraged giving do big things. We're all cheering for Jorge to do just that in Puerto Rico. If any of these groups sparked your own giving passions, you can recommend a grant from your donor's trust account to any of them. But if you aren't giving through Donors Trust, well, what are you waiting for? But you can give to them, and I encourage it. That's what we want to do with this show, to help you discover groups that fit your giving goals. We also do this show to give you a bit of optimism that there is some great stuff happening out there to advance the ideas of liberty. We'll be back soon with more of these ideas. Please do subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is that you do your podcast listening. Why not give it a five-star review as well? That! would be a very generous gift to help support the show. So until next time, thank you for being a giver, and let's talk more soon.